Okay, we've been in a series that, that we're calling What We Believe, and we've been talking about some basic things uh, that every Christian should know from God's Word. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, we, if, if you're going to be able to share the gospel or the, the message of Christ and His church, you, you need to know, start with these things that we've been talking about. Talked about communion. Um, and, you know, today we're going to talk about just the church itself. We're going we're gonna to look at the blueprint of the church. Uh, and let's just start off with a scripture, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus said this, <clears throat> And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is one time when Jesus told what his intentions were. He, he, he said, I'm going to build my church. Uh, and I think when we, if we just think about it logically, we could say uh, honestly that Jesus built his church exactly the way he wanted it to be. We, we all agree with that? You know, we all agree with that? Jesus built his church the way he wanted it to be. And it's been 2,000 years since he said that and since the church began. Uh, we're studying the book of Acts in the Sunday morning um, <clears throat> uh, Sunday school class, and we're, we're actually going through the, those very first days and weeks and years of the church when it was, be, when it was being established and built. Um, um, but how can we know it after 2,000 years? That was a long time ago, right? Uh, how can we know what the church should look like. Uh, well, it's easy. In fact, it's very easy to find out what the church should look like. All we have to do is go to the Bible, <laughs> go to God's Word, um, because God left us a pretty clear blueprint for His church uh, in His Word. In fact, the New Testament is really the only source we have for, uh, for God's plan for his church. There's no other place that we can go outside of the Bible to figure out what the church is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to be like, what it's supposed to do. Uh, you know, Jesus' desire among Christians was, from the very beginning, as we see in John 17, 20 through 26, he wanted complete unity among Christians, that they should always be on basically on the same page. Uh, and how we look at the Christian world today and we see that that's not true. You know, there's a different kind of church on every corner uh, and throughout the world. Um, we could come closer to unity by doing just one thing. Um, simply putting aside man-made creeds, man-made denominational rules and regulations, man-made traditions, and just do one thing. Look at the New Testament and see, how did they do it? What did the church look like in the New Testament? Let's be that church. And if we did that, we'd be a lot closer to unity. There'd still be some disagreement here and there. But basically, we would be united in our faith and practice. You know, the website of an American denomination uh, in its section on beliefs and practices said this about baptism. One, one, of, the, one of the things that, one of the the, the I guess controversies that are most prevalent among the different Christian groups, the different church groups, is baptism. What, what does baptism look like? Who gets baptized? How do you do it? You know, what's it for? 
um, you got a lot of different ideas about what baptism is uh, in American churches today. Uh, so on this one website of an American domination, it said this about baptism. A candidate for holy baptism or his sponsors may choose any of the traditional ways baptism is administered, sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. You know, variety is a spice of life, right? Woo, we love, we love like a lot, uh, uh, Wednesday night for Chinese. We had all kinds of different, uh, that it all looked kind of the same, but, uh, uh, you know, supposedly it was all different. Uh, we, we like variety. We like having choices, don't we? Uh, uh, traditions can be good things. They really can. Uh, and God gives us many areas in his church where we can exercise our thirst for variety and traditions for, for choices. Um, areas where the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about things. You know, there's, there's, there's some areas that in our churches and our Christian uh, life that you know, the Bible doesn't address uh, much at all. Um, things like worship style. Uh, you know, that it doesn't really talk about worship style at all. Uh, educational style, you know, the small groups, uh, classroom settings, you know, what, 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 are, what, what type of education should, should we we'd have? Bible translations, you know, when the, when, the, when the church first started, there were no Bible translations. It was just Greek and Hebrew, uh, and of course, it had to be translated into different languages um, and different uh, eras of time and history. Uh, and so, but the Bible doesn't really address, which it, it really doesn't say that if the King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for us. It doesn't say that. I mean, it really doesn't. Um, <laughs> buildings, cathedrals, you were talking about the castles and the, the big churches in, in, in Scotland, uh, you know, or little buildings like this, uh, or a tent in in, uh, in, uh, in Africa or something, you know, there's no discussion of buildings in the church. So we've got some, some variety there. Where do we send our mission support? Doesn't talk about where we should send our mission support. A special service. How about Christmas services, Easter services, you know, things like that. Uh, there's no mention of special services in the scripture or benevolent ministries. Uh, uh, Will and, uh, and Jim are down helping out with the uh, food ministry downtown. Uh, there's, no, there's no specifics about what benevolent ministry should we be involved with. So in those areas, we have some choices we can make. Scripture doesn't even talk about it. And what would unity be in those areas? What would unity be in those areas? Unity would be agreeing that it's okay to be different. In some of those areas. In other words, for example, agreeing that worship styles can be different and it's okay. It's okay. Maybe I don't like that particular style, but it's okay. It's not, nothing wrong with it. It's just that I don't like it. <clears throat> but other areas in our faith and our practice are very specific in God's word. Uh, and, and unity in these specific Bible-specific areas would be, if we wanted to be united on specific biblical areas, unity would be understanding that God's word speaks to it and then seeking to do it that way, to be 
uh, to, to pattern our faith and practice just like those first Christians did back in the day of the first century that we read about in the New Testament. And baptism is one of those specific areas that the Bible does address. In God's word, there was only one mode of baptism, immersion. Uh, the, the immersion of an individual completely under the water and back up out of the water. Um, there's no other mode discussed. Those other modes came many years later, sometimes centuries later. Uh, in the beginning, among those first Christians, it was only immersion. Um, and all the believers made the decision themselves to be baptized. A parent or a sponsor did not make the decision for them. Each individual decided, hey, I, I put my trust in Jesus, and I want to be baptized. In God's word, there's only one candidate. There's only one candidate for baptism. One who is mature enough to believe in Jesus Christ and accept him as their Savior, and then they decide for themselves they want to be baptized. That's the scriptural pattern, the scriptural model. And so unity among Christians in the area of baptism would be we could have more unity if we just said, you know what, let's, let's do it like they did it in the Bible and forget, forget about anything else. Forget about anything else. You know, there is an easy-to-follow blueprint of Christ's church available for us in the New Testament. Um, and what I want to do this morning is to just take a few minutes to consider some of the key structural and archaeological designs of Christ's church uh, from his blueprint. Okay, let's do that. Let's first of all talk about, since we're talking about a church, uh, and so we're thinking about, uh, in a spiritual sense, we're kind of thinking about it in a physical sense. Let's talk about the foundation. The foundation. Every building, every structure has a foundation, right? Um, uh, that we build the, 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 the building upon. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he said this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, the New Testament refers to Jesus as the foundation of the church. Um, the church was built on him. Uh, it was built by him and no one else. Um, he is what holds the church together built solidly on him as the foundation. And strangely enough, the New Testament also refers to the apostles and the prophets as part of the foundation. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20 through 22. And again, this is the apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He said, Consequently, you, you Christians, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself, as the, with Christ Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Uh, a, lot, a lot in there, but a lot of important things in this passage. First of all, Jesus is the foundation. In, in other words, he's the cornerstone. In uh, some archaeology, archeo, um, uh, architectural uh, understanding and theory, uh, you lay, the first thing you lay is your cornerstone when you're building with stones. And, and, and then you put that cornerstone where you want that to be, all right, where you want your building to be, and then you build the rest of the foundation off of the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Jesus is that cornerstone. He is what everything else from the rest of the foundation to the building itself uh, is referenced to. Um, uh, he, he built his church uh, and then also on the teachings and the leadership of the prophets before him uh, in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles that he chose to lead his church after he left. Uh, and when he left this earth, to, when Jesus left this earth to return to his father, the apostles then took that message of Jesus as, as being the, the part of the, the, the foundation to the world, to uh, J Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. He took that message to, they took that message to the world and taught those first Christians how to be Christians. Uh, and then they recorded what they taught in what we know today as the New Testament, the four Gospels and the rest of the New, the New Testament. So we have their teaching, the, the foundation's teaching, we have that today in the form of the New Testament 2,000 years later. God took care of making sure we had what we need. We had the blueprint uh, given to us by the apostles. So the foundation of Christ's church is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We have, what do we have from him? We have his teaching, we have his example, we have his sacrifice, and we have the apostles, or the, the prophets before in the Old Testament. But then we have the apostles, their witness of Jesus. They were there. They were taught by Jesus. And then we have their teaching, uh, and we have it in the form of the New Testament. There is no other foundation on which the church must be born, uh, must be uh, built. So that's the foundation. All right, what do you build on the foundation? You build the house, right? Now you have your foundation, Jesus, the apostles. Now let's build the house. The same passage that we just read tells uh, us that the house uh, built on this foundation is who? It's who? It's you and me. We are the house. Let's go back to that same passage again, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Consequently, you, Christians, Paul's writing to the Christians in, in Ephesus. So he's saying, consequently, you, Christians, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. You know, uh, we are the building on the foundation, you and me. We, we all understand, hopefully we all understand, that the church is not a literal building. This, this structure that we're in is not the church. We call it the church. You say, I'm going out to the church. Um, but really what we mean is the, the church building or the place where the church gathers, 
uh, you know, for special events. Uh, we understand the church is not this building or any other building. The church is fellow brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who put their faith in the teachings of the apostles. The church, the house of God, is the people, you and me, as fellow Christians. Um, so we might ask, I've heard people say, why do we need to study the Bible? You know, I, I get bored studying the Bible. Do we need to study the Bible? Uh, well, yes, we do, for a very important reason. Uh, the church was built on what? It was built on Christ and his teachings and his example and on the apostles' teaching. All right, if we're going to be the church and we're going to be the house of God, we need to know what that teaching was. What did the foundation say? All right, we need to understand that. And that's why it's so important for us to study the Bible regularly, to read it regularly, to come to, to classes and, and learn as much as we can about it because that's where all of our faith and practice comes from. The only way we know what our Savior taught and what the apostles taught is if we study it, uh, if we read it. Um, one of the reasons there is disunity among Christians today is that many choose to build on other foundations rather than the, just the foundation of the apostles and, uh, and Christ. They build on man-made foundations. Uh, and when you build on a man-made foundation, what happens? The house gets weak, and it collapses. The, old, the wise man built his house upon the rock or the sand. Remember that song? And the house on the sand went splat, or splat, right? Because it's the wrong foundation. Yeah. Many ignore the teaching of the, uh, of the apostles uh, and of Christ when it comes to the foundation of a church. Uh, a, a good example, I think, is the moral issues. When we think about churches, you know, the world, the world it does what it does. But there are a lot of churches today uh, who, who ignore the foundational teachings when it comes to, to just moral issues uh, that are getting so much attention today. Uh, in the news. Uh, the Apostle Paul, though, if you go to the foundation, which one of, part of the foundation is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is very clear on passages like Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, that immoral sexual lifestyle choices are sinful. They're just sinful. Uh, there's no rationalizing and making them and decorating them up to look okay they're just sinful immoral lifestyle choices defined in the new testament are sinful no matter what the culture says uh, they're sinful and so they should be rejected by christians now uh, sinners are precious in the eyes of god uh, uh, and forgiveness can come to, for any sin that anybody commits, we should love those who are, are, fall, have fallen into sin. You know why we should? Because we're sinners too. We're no better than anybody else. We're, we've just been forgiven uh, through Jesus Christ. And so we should embrace anyone, no matter what their lifestyle is. Um, but According to the foundational teachings of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles of Jesus and Jesus himself, any lifestyle choice that is sinful should never be accepted as okay by the church. 
no matter what the culture says, no matter what the culture says, and to build a house in any other way, regardless of how popular it is in culture, it weakens the structure, and then it'll eventually collapse. So we, the house, you and me, build our lives on the foundation, Jesus Christ and the apostles' teaching, and that's the only foundation. Let's talk about organizing the house. We build our house, now it's, it's all set up, and whenever we build a house, what do we have to do? We've got to organize it now. We've got to put the furniture where it needs to be, and we've got to, you know, to, to uh, paint it, and we've got to figure out how we're going to live in it. Um, so when it comes to the house of God, how do we organize it? As we study the blueprint of Christ's church, <clears throat> how, did in, how did Jesus intend for the church to be organized? That's what we need to focus on, nothing else. Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. So, for example, what type of government uh, did the, did, was set up in place for the church uh, by Jesus and the apostles? Um, where do we all fit in to this house? You know, wh- wh- which room is ours? You know, what, what uh, work do we, are we required to do to, make, to maintain the house? How do we all fit into it? You know, as we look around the Christian community, we see so many different forms of organization among the different groups. We see some organized and controlled by a central or national body or even a worldly body. Uh, uh, You know, one one group of churches uh, had this statement on their website. It said, only the national conference speaks for our denomination. Some are organized and controlled by a regional leadership, like a southeast or a midwest leadership, and, and, and they must go to, to that headquarters to, to find out what direction they should go in. Some structure their leadership through a hierarchy of positions. Um, some, one person at the top, and it works itself down, beginning with a, a national figure, maybe even a worldly figure, uh, down to regional leaders, progressing down eventually to the local congregation leaders. Some accomplish this by using even biblical names like bishop uh, or elder. Some use more modern names like chairman or president. Some even use military titles like lieutenant and colonel and general uh, and, and military organizational systems or models. Many churches today are independent or autonomous. They have no outside control, no hierarchy beyond the local congregation. Um, Each congregation is in complete control of all of its affairs. But even among independent congregations, there are different structures and different governing systems. Uh, For example, some are completely controlled by one single individual, uh, like the often called the pastor, and he's in charge of everything. Uh, He's the ruler or the leader. He has servants or deacons below him, uh, and they exercise uh, whatever uh, his leadership requires. Others have a plurality of leaders, uh, often called elders or overseers, who share in the leadership responsibilities. Some see the church as a democracy, Um, like a country where everybody has a voice and everyone's voice wants to be heard. Everyone has a vote. 
Nothing happens unless the whole congregation or the majority agree. Uh, uh, Deacons are sort of like uh, congressional representatives. Deacons are are representatives who vote the will of the people. You know, what do you guys want? Okay, that's what I'll vote for. Um, God's Word does address church structure. And, 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 And as we look at it, we find out what that is. Let's see what God's Word says about how the church, how the house should be organized. First of all, we see as we look through the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, we see that the first congregations in the New Testament were all autonomous. They were all autonomous. Paul and the other apostles went throughout, if you, again, if you read through the, the, the book of Acts, they went throughout uh, the, 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 the known world, the Roman world, and established congregations throughout the Roman world. But once they got them up and running and established elders there and went to the next town, the church that they left behind was in complete control of itself, of all of its affairs. Uh, Paul would sometimes write letters to them, like his letters to Corinth and to Ephesus and others, uh, to encourage them even to to give some disciplinary thoughts. Uh, But he had no control of them. Uh, he, he said, this is what you should do, but then it was up to them to do it. Uh, and there's a practical reason for our church being autonomous with no outside control whatsoever, because hands-on leadership is always more effective in dealing with relationships with God and fellow Christians than some person far away, uh, uh, in leadership. Hands-on leadership is always better. So the first congregations, as the example we see in Scripture, is that they were all autonomous. Secondly, we see the first congregations were led by elders. They were led by elders. We see the first mention of elders being appointed or ordained in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where it says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church in Lystra, in Iconium, in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in those congregations, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Um, One thing that that we see as we study uh, this position is that elders seem to have been appointed in every congregation that was established. Once they got up and running and people began to learn and grow and become more mature, then then an elder, elders were then appointed to be the leaders of that congregation. And there was always, always a plurality of elders. In other words, there was two or more. There was never just one elder. There was never just the elder at Ephesus or the elder at Corinth. It was always the elders at Corinth or Ephesus. Their function is actually given in the names that were used to identify who they were. Uh, There were three names given for the position of elder in a congregation. One was elder, uh, uh, which indicates the person's age, but not necessarily their physical age, but their spiritual age, their maturity. Uh, An elder needed to be someone who was a mature Christian. Um, The second name that's used in Scripture to identify the elder was overseer another name, indicating their responsibility to oversee the affairs of uh, the local congregation. They, they just 
kind of you just kind of see them as looking over. Okay, how how is everybody doing? How are you doing? Sort of uh, keeping their finger on the pulse of the congregation. The third name used in the New Testament for this position of elder was shepherd or pastor. Those are the same name, shepherd or pastor, uh, which indicated that that there's their, their role as a spiritual leader in the congregation. Now, uh, the, the elder uh, or pastor doesn't drive a congregation. All right, you do this. This is what you're doing. Like a, like a cowboy would drive a herd of cattle uh, from the back of a horse. No, the, the, the elder was like a shepherd of sheep. Uh, the, the congregation is often called and referred to as the flock, right? And so the shepherd, a shepherd doesn't drive his sheep, he leads them. The sheep know him and love him, and wherever the shepherd goes, the sheep just follow him. Uh, and that's the, the idea of a shepherd or pastor in a local congregation. And there's actually one passage in the New Testament that uses all three of these terms, um, elder, overseer, pastor, or shepherd. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Let's read that. This is, this is written by the Apostle Peter. He said this, To the elders, and if I got them, I don't have it uh, italicized. Um, to the elders among you, of the churches that he's writing to, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who, is also, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He says, be shepherds or pastors. Be shepherds, pastors of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Overseers. I think we get the term bishop from this term. So the term bishop is not another position in the church. It's just another name for an elder. Uh, Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing As God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Is that another idea of you're the shepherd, you're not the cattle driver, you're the shepherd, you're the example that that the flock follows. So there's a, a great example of all three of the terms used in Scripture. They're all three the same thing. A lot a lot of groups uh separate all of those things. You know, the elder is one thing, but then the overseer or bishop is another thing, and then the pastor is another thing. No, they were all three the same thing. They were, one, they were names for the elders of a local congregation. The biblical pattern for leadership in the local congregation was, it's very plain, elders. Elders. Uh, Paul instructed Timothy, who was a young evangelist. He was like the preacher. Uh, he, in, he instructed Timothy to appoint or ordain elders in every town or every congregation, Titus 1, verse 5. And these men, uh, we see, were, what kind of men were they? Just anybody? Whoever gives the most money, is that who we choose? You know, whoever's the, the most popular? Is that, how, how do we choose who should be an elder? Well, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 tell us who should be elders. We see that they should be mature and model Christians. In fact, there's a whole chapter in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 of the qualifications for someone who would be selected as an elder. No, it's not the one who gives the most money, and it's not the most popular. It's the one who is the most mature as a follower of Jesus. 
Um, and their job was to direct the affairs of the church, 1 Timothy 5, 17. So the pattern of leadership in the New Testament is very, very clear. It's very, very clear. The local congregation is led by two or more elders. Um, there are no controlling councils, uh, hierarchy beyond the local congregation. There's no mention of a single person uh, or a single pastor who rules the local congregation by himself. Uh, there are evangelists. There were preachers like Timothy, yes, but once a congregation was established, Paul instructed the preacher to appoint elders, and then they became the leaders. No system of government is perfect, including this one, <laughs> including this one. Uh, uh, because, and there's a reason why. You know why? Because every system of government is made up of people, and people are not perfect, and they make mistakes. And, and so it's this elder idea that Jesus gave us, uh, or model, is not perfect. But God knew that when there's two or more, uh, you, get a, you get some great things from that. You get uh, them encouraging each other. You get them supporting each other. And maybe most important, you, you get checks and balances. You know, it's not just one person making the decision. It's two or three people making the decision together. And they play on each other's strength and strengths and weaknesses. Not perfect, but this is the model that, that God chose for his church. That was the pattern of those first congregations. Um, several years ago, I was talking to a minister who served in a fellowship of churches. And as a general rule, this fellowship of churches did not have elders in their congregation. Each congregation was led by a single person, the pastor. He was in charge of everything. However, this minister was telling me that, that his congregation, which is a very a rather large congregation in the Atlanta area, had recently appointed elders in their church to oversee the affairs of the congregation. Now, I ask him, you know, what led you all to do this? Since most of your sister churches in the area don't do that, or in the country don't do that, what led you to make this move? And without hesitation, he said this, the Bible. <laughs> the Bible led us to this. He told me uh, that it, they saw in Scripture that the model of the, 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 the church in the New Testament was the congregation is led by elders. So they, so they did that. And even though they... Some eyebrows were raised by sister congregations in the area. They decided to do what's to, to go towards scripture rather than culture uh, uh, to make their decision. And lastly, the, the first congregations shared in ministry. They shared in ministry. Christ Church was meant to be a sharing church, sharing in ministry church, uh, sharing by everybody, every single Christian in, uh, in, in, a, in a congregation. God meant for all of us to share in the ministry together. Uh, the first congregations understood that clearly. Um, while there were elders appointed to lead, evangelists appointed to preach, uh, deacons appointed to serve, teachers appointed to teach, uh, we read Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 that talks about that. Um, everyone else who didn't fit in those, those four categories, everyone else were to take their specific spiritual gift and use it in ministry somewhere, somewhere. Ephesians 4, verse 16. We've, we've talked about this several times recently, but, 
Ephesians 4, 16. From him, the whole body, from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part does his work. Each of us has a part. We have a part to play in, uh, in the body of Christ. Uh, and, and, and Romans 12, verse 6 through 8 is an example of what that part could be uh, with the spiritual gift that each one of us receives when we become a Christian. R Romans 12, 6 through 8. Paul wrote this. We have, we Christians, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, then let him use it to, in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, if his gift is serving, well, let him serve. Uh, if it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, uh, let him do it cheerfully. Whatever God has given you to do, do it. Do it. Everyone can do something in the kingdom of God. And God wants us all to do something in the kingdom of God. And, and so he gives us a spiritual gift. And so uh, one of the things that all of us should try to do in our, uh, as we walk with Christ is, what is my spiritual gift? What is my spiritual gift? And how can I use it in the kingdom of God? It's never, ah, I'm just going to sit here and listen. Uh, there's nothing I can do. Yes, there is. There is absolutely something you can do. And as I said a few, couple of weeks ago, well, just try something. Just try anything. Sign up for Vacation Bible School and, and let Anita stick you somewhere that you're comfortable. Uh, and, uh, and try that. See how that works. And maybe that'll lead to other things. And eventually you'll say, All right, this is where I need to be. This is where I need to be. The blueprint of Christ's church is found in only one place. One place. And it, it's in the Word of God. Um, and it is our goal here at Stony Brook Christian Church uh, to seek to pattern this congregation, our congregation, after those first congregations. Now, are we completely there yet? Are we 100%? <laughs> no, we're not. We are not 100%. And we probably never will be. Uh, and we understand that. But here's the thing. That's our goal. That's our goal, is to be as much like those first congregations as possible. For it's our belief that the unity that Christ prayed for so much among Christians can come closer to reality uh, if we will seek to be the church that Christ built. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the instrument that we are a part of that carries the gospel to the world. We are a part of it. Uh, it's your church. It's your body. And so, Lord, help us to just be the best body we can be uh, to understand what our role is in it and how it is built. And, and, uh, and just, you know, not worry about what everybody else is doing, but just focus on what we need to do according to your word uh, and, and, uh, and, and be the best that we can be. So, Father, thank you for allowing us the privilege of being built on your foundation and help us to carry out our responsibility to the best of our ability as we serve you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.